0: mentioned earlier, we're in our Advent series. We're looking uh, back at Christ's coming, His incarnation, and then we're looking forward to Christ's return. And so we are looking this morning at the book of Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. If you have a Bible, we would love it if you would pull that out and follow along with us. passage will also be up here on the screen. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we would appreciate it. Genesis chapter 3, Verses 1 through 15. Let's read together, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. doesn't get more difficult than this, Lord, as far as a a subject for consideration on a Sunday morning. Sin, the origin of sin, our condition as sinful people. And so we are aware that when we talk about a subject like this, we are inclined to either be completely despairing, beyond consolation, or prideful. And so, Lord, I pray that you would protect us from both of those things by the power of your Spirit, and that you would use this message to challenge us, but also to renew us and to refresh us this Advent season. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Boy, is it not popular these days to talk about sin. Not mainly because the subject matter is uncomfortable. It's always been uncomfortable, but because we're pretty certain that we don't believe in sin in the first place. And it's even worse to use the term sinner or sinners, thereby categorizing sinfulness as a human condition and inciting the modern priests of self-actualization to tear their robes. This is not a new development. In fact, we've raised this issue in previous sermons What is newer, however, at least in my view, is the fading from view of sin among those who profess to be followers of Jesus. Perhaps they're inclined to dismiss the idea of sin entirely, often adopting a universalistic posture toward salvation because they believe that this posture fits better with what they know and believe about God's character. Or perhaps they're inclined to adopt language that speaks of sin exclusively, and this is really important, exclusively in terms of the effects of sin while potentially minimizing the moral horror of sin itself. The term brokenness comes to mind, which can be a very helpful description of what sin does to us, but also... Kind of a therapeutic way of downplaying our agency in doing the sinning and therefore minimizing the seriousness of our sin. It's not popular to talk about sin. Unless you're sinned against, come to find out. Then all of a sudden we're big believers and something being objectively, morally wrong. And then, as you know, we have quite the affinity for taking huge offense and for blustering all over social media and calling people out and harboring grudges, et cetera, et cetera, believing, of course, that we are objectively right about our grievances, that the sins of others are very, very real. you notice, however, that in both of these cases, there's not a lot of hope. Either the sinner doesn't really exist at all, which really puts you up a tree when you can see the effects of sin all around you, and if you're honest, you can detect some sin issues in your own heart. It's a reality-bending experience that basically traps us in anxiety and despair and, frankly, makes any kind of real justice hard to come by. So things are hopeless because the sinner doesn't exist at all, or if sinners do exist, they're simply piled upon, they're condemned, they are canceled. Forgiveness and restoration are not really in style right now enter the biblical narrative which deals very forthrightly with the reality of our sin while at the same time giving us a way forward that doesn't end in condemnation and cancellation. And in doing so, God gives sinful people so much hope. Sinful people like me. Sinful people like You. Because it turns out that if sin is real, the thing to do about it would be something along the lines of calling a spade a spade, while simultaneously and miraculously forging a path for redemption and restoration. And surprise, that is exactly what we find in the biblical narrative. So accordingly this morning, we're considering an Advent promise for sinful people next week. It's for anxious people and then waiting people and then hopeless people. This morning, an Advent promise for sinful people, a promise we will navigate by means of two reflections. Number one, sin is a real problem. And then number two, the head bruiser is coming. Sin is a real problem. Number two, the head bruiser is coming. We'll start with that first one. Sin, church, is a real problem. In Genesis chapters. One and two, we learn a lot about God's character. God is the uncreated, eternal God, dependent on nothing for existence. He created all things, and therefore, He knows all things, and He knows how everything fits together. And we learn that He is the only God, and therefore, His ultimate authority covers everything. Nothing is outside of His jurisdiction. And the good news is that because he is eternal and knows all things, he is supremely wise and therefore uses his authority in the best possible way. We also learn in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 that God created us to be his stewards, his representatives on this earth. It was his intention that we would care for and cultivate the world that he made. He also created us to be in a flourishing relationship with him and one another as people made in the very image of God, who is himself a relational being. And this is very important. This vertical and horizontal flourishing was contingent church upon God's people living according to his plan for our life. Part of that plan for Adam and Eve included the very famous stipulation that God presented to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then in Genesis chapter 3, things go totally off the rails. Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree, Of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? What in the world? Because you know, they had a pretty good setup, didn't they? They had a personal relationship with the God of the universe, they had really great jobs, they were living in a really nice garden, and since gardening is very popular here in Gainesville, that should grab you emotionally. Locally, we have these plant swap groups on social media where somebody can say, hey, I have a lot of orchids, and someone can say, well, I have agapanthus, and then just, shoop, you can just swap them. (laughs) But let me tell you, in the Garden of Eden, they had all of the plants. They didn't need to be swapping anything. So why? Here's the why. Look at Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent. In this case, Satan, presenting himself as a serpent, said to Eve, by the way, she's not actually called Eve until verse 20. So I'm using that name here for simplicity. So The serpent said to Eve, you know how God doesn't want you to eat from the tree in the midst of the garden? Well, he's keeping you from something amazing. He knows that if you eat from the tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good, and evil. So Eve, verse 6, seeing that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And in doing so, they flipped God's creational design totally on its head. God intended Adam and Eve to be his representatives imaging him, stewarding the entire earth. But instead, they became the representatives for a humanity that would universally accompany Adam and Eve in their sin. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Church, do you see the nature of sin? Do you see the why behind this tragedy? Adam and Eve decided that they would very much enjoy being like God, effectively being God's themselves, and so they ate the fruit. We likewise desire to be like God, to be God, rather than living under God. And as we act upon that desire thereby living outside of God's plan for our lives, because we think we know better than him, that is sin. And you know, perhaps we might profess some kind of generic belief in God, that but then kind of functionally sit in judgment over him. We might claim to be vaguely something, a theist, maybe even a Christian, we might say that, but then... In practice, we sit in judgment over him. We kind of pick and choose what parts of the Bible we want to take seriously according to what suits us, what we think is fair, what fits best with our cultural moment. Or, in other cases, we just reject God altogether, stubbornly persisting in unbelief. And we might say something like, Well, there's just not enough information. If there is better information about God, I would believe. The British mathematician and Philosopher Bertrand Russell is known to have said that should he be wrong about his atheism and somehow confront God in the afterlife, he would tell God, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. But would unbelievers actually believe, even if there was, quote, enough evidence? Richard Dawkins has said that even if a voice thundered from heaven exclaiming, hey, I'm God and I exist, or even if Jesus Christ himself returned during his lifetime, he would chalk all of that up to hallucinations. And there's a very popular atheist group online. I'm not 100% positive about this, but I think it's a community that's rallied around an atheist YouTube channel Recently, they did an internal poll of themselves and discovered that 80% of them at least say that they would persist in their atheism no matter what. So in other words, no new information, no arguments, no miracles, no proofs, nothing could possibly cause them to renounce their atheism. Atheism is commonly couched as an information problem. The thinking person's rejection of the spaghetti monster but it actually turns out to be a disposition problem. The age-old desire to be our own gods just reflected in a different way. We tend to not believe in God because we don't want to believe in God. So we can be our own gods by either A, retaining vague belief in God while simultaneously sitting in judgment over said God instead of trusting God in living in full obedience to him, or B, we can reject God entirely, possibly convincing ourselves it's an information problem when in truth it's more of an I-don't-want-to problem. These two paths are actually much closer cousins than we might imagine. They are fruit from the same tree. And by the way, Eastern religions are very popular right now in the West, or at least westernized corruptions of them in part because they tend to be rather malleable according to what we think we need and what we want our spiritual lives to look like. There's a lot of space for self-design as opposed to Christianity, which calls us into conformity with God's design. And here's the thing, and this is what I really, our rebelliousness, this is where my heart really is, our rebelliousness, our attempts at being God, church, It just doesn't work. We're not very good at being God because we're not God. After Adam and Eve took control, so to speak, after they did things their own way, no supernatural abilities descended upon them from the heavenlies. Yes, their eyes were opened, all right, they gained some new insight, but the insight they gained mainly concerned the damage caused to the relationship with God And so they were ashamed, look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they were terrified, look at verse 8. And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then here's what we encounter as the narrative continues in the chapter 4. Sin crouches at Cain's door, Cain being the son of Adam and Eve. But instead of resisting this sin, he kills his brother Abel. T.S. Eliot wrote a poem called The Hollow Men that ends like this. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. I'm going to borrow that line and re-engineer it for our purposes. This is the way Sin ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Sin has been this catastrophic letdown since day one. In church, it will always be. Our plans are not better than God's plans. And when we experience the produce of our sin, it's like letting the air out of a balloon that's well past its prime. It ends up being this this sputtering mess. But here's the worst part about our sin. This is something that's far beyond pragmatic concerns. Sin breaks the relationship we have with the Almighty God, and it separates us from Him. We just saw this in verse 8. Adam and Eve apparently, think about this, they used to go on walks with God in the garden in the cool of the day. But this time, as God goes on His walk, Adam and Eve hide from God in shame and terror. And eventually, as we read at the end of the chapter, God evicts Adam and Eve from the garden itself. So we have this, think about it, we have this terrible situation on our hands. We're doing things our own way, won't deliver in the way that we think it will and believe it will. But even if we want to turn back and walk with God, we can't do that either because we're separated from Him. Listen, about fifty percent, I think, this is anecdotal, but this run with it, about fifty percent of holiday rom-coms have this scene where someone drops somebody off at the airport after like a breakup, and then they start driving away and they're like, oh shoot. I really love that person, right? And so it's like whoop, they turn the car around and they're heading back to the airport, and now they're like sprinting through the concourse because apparently if the plane takes off, that is that is it. There's, there's <laughs> no reclaiming the relationship. So this is the last opportunity. Imagine a scene, though, in which you turn your car around only to discover that the road has since been closed for construction. No more access to the airport. And that's the kind of scene we find unfolding in Genesis chapter 3. Although let me make things one level worse. The truth about sin is that we never really even turn the car around. The road might be closed behind us, but it doesn't even matter all that much because even if we know we've made a huge mistake, we tend to pridefully and stubbornly persist in driving away anyway. Chipper, this is all very dark. This is like the darkest Hallmark movie I've ever heard of. You are you are ruining Christmas. You're supposed to be doing crafts and wearing sweaters and making cookies and, and watching Buick commercials, and here you are. It's dark, but it's true, and it's real. And let's not overthink things. Doesn't sin make sense of the individual and corporate discord that we find in our world right now? Doesn't the profoundly self-oriented nature of sin explain why it is that we hurt other people and other people hurt us and nations war against nations and why every day we live in a world that is not as it should be? Because sin is real, There are massive Advent implications here, actually, for both believers and unbelievers. Jesus' followers, if that describes, if we're in search of some Advent joy this holiday season, we're going to need to be real about our sin for the sake of remembering our truest state apart from Christ. Not to be too provocative here. But it's kind of a tired trope these days to complain about the busyness of the holidays and how it gets in the way of all of our joyful Advent rest. Our favorite Christian devotionals and often radio stations consistently put this busyness in the crosshairs. And granted, there is some truth to that. A lot of us are way too busy. We are doing way too many things, and so we can't rest and we can't enjoy Jesus. We don't have the space for it. But here's what really gets in the way of our joy, misperceiving or misremembering the seriousness of our sin, which ends up keeping us from truly savoring the beauty of Jesus. Puritan Thomas Watson put it like this, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. Merry Christmas, everybody, right? The more real we are about the realness of our sin, the more sweetness and joy we can taste and experience this Advent season. So for the beauty and the power of Jesus' incarnation to really land these next few weeks, we'll actually need to freshly confront our sinfulness and spend time in rhythms of very earnest confession and repentance. I think a lot of times we associate confession and repentance with Lent, with the season leading up to Easter. If you're neglecting it during Advent, you're missing out. In Christ we are saved from our sin, but until we're with Christ, we wrestle with it, thus the need, for ongoing repentance and belief for every believer, which ends up gaining us more sweetness and enjoyment in Christ. Did you know that? Do you believe that? And a word for those of you who are not following Jesus. If if we are right about this sin thing, and ultimately you'll need to deal with this on your own terms, right? You'll need to read books and and have difficult conversations. Don't just take my word for it. Look into this on your own. But if we're right about this sin thing, as someone who's been a Christian now for more than 30 years and investigated this kind of thing up and down, I will tell you that I believe it more than ever. If we're right, Do you see that your only hope is something or someone outside of yourself? Do you see that? You cannot fix it on your own. You cannot self-actualize or or meditate or succeed or life-hack your way into a solution. You can't do it. And the situation is really dire. Apart from external help, you're separated from God forever, outside of the garden, outside of personal, joyful fellowship with Him. Which brings us to our second reflection. Here's the really good news, church. The head bruiser is coming. For all of the darkness contained in Genesis chapter 3, that same chapter ends up giving us mysterious, yet very real and supernatural hope. Look at verses 14 and 15, which spell out the consequences of the previous events in chapter 3 for the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, that is, deceived even, indirectly Adam as well, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see the hope in verse 15? Serpent or Satan, you will perpetually be at war with the human race, the offspring of Eve. But know that the deck is already stacked against you. A particular offspring is coming who will bruise your head. So you will bruise his heel, but that's just a momentary setback. Head wounds. Those are lethal. Serpent, you're going to lose. Truthfully, you're already defeated, along with the sin and the death you represent. And this is a promise, directly from God Himself. Moments after the fall. A very real, supernatural, of course, mysterious promise. It's It's God's version, basically, of saying, I have a certain set of skills. And yet there's some mystery and anticipation concerning how it is that everything will pan out. However, now we have the full movie that's available for streaming in the comfort of your home. Now we have access through Scripture to the entire biblical narrative. We know what God was talking about when He said all of this, To the serpent. An offspring of the woman has indeed come from the line of Eve's son, Seth. Seth being, check this out, a son given to her by God. I'm not making this up. See Genesis 4.25. As a replacement for her son, Abel, killed by his brother, Cain. God worked redemptively in the wake of fratricide to establish the line of the offspring of Eve that would eventually be wrapped by Mary in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. A son who was born to become the second perfect Adam. Romans 5 again, this time verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What act of obedience are we talking about here? Here's the Apostle Paul a second time in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among you, Philippian believers, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The serpent landed a heel strike, and the offspring of Eve died on the cross and stayed three days in the grave. But the offspring rose again, bruising the head of the serpent, mortally wounding sin and death. And the head bruiser did so in this way. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Do you notice that God has this habit of taking something meant for evil and using it for good. Do you see this? Cain killed Abel, so God gave Eve another son whose lineage you can trace all the way to Jesus. Think about that. A lineage that runs through Judah, the brother of Joseph, that Joseph famously left for dead by Judah and the rest of his brothers, only to become a ruler in Egypt and eventually tell his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good that he might preserve his family in a season of famine and thus preserve the line of Eve's offspring. And then the wounds Satan inflicted, which were meant to destroy. He wasn't messing around. He wasn't playing a game. Jesus commandeered them to heal the nations, to heal those who repent or die to their sin and put their hope, in the righteous one that they themselves might live to righteousness. Jesus saves us from the spiritual famine of our sin that we might be nourished by him eternally and have life. And did you know that Jesus is coming again? Jesus has already delivered the mortal blow. But you and I both know that the enmity between Satan and the human race continues until Jesus comes a second time. This time as a king riding on a white horse, Revelation chapter 19. And then he will judge the living and the dead. Then the power of Satan will be entirely quenched. By the way, in Revelation chapter 20, and I believe also in chapter 12, John explicitly connects Satan with, quote, the ancient serpent. And the people of God will live with God forever in the new heaven and earth no more discord, no more COVID or any kind of pandemics, no more war, only joy everlasting. That is it. And we'll have jobs we all enjoy again. Thank God. (laughs) And then the promise for sinful people will be fully realized. One Jesus, two Advents. And for now, the people of God live within the second season of Advent waiting, a season of that's festooned with this very strange garland of pain and beauty and waiting. We're mourning the enmity that we see in the world, and yet we're rejoicing in the victory Christ Jesus has secured over that enmity. And we are longing with great anticipation for the consummation of God's promise. And though we're sinful people, we understand that on account of the head bruiser, Our sin does not have the final word. It does not. But do you know the head bruiser? He's the one you need. If you don't know him, he's the one you need. He's that solution we talked about earlier that's found outside of yourself, and he can deal with your sin no matter how great. One of the joys of pastoral ministry is being able to stand up in a place like this and be able to tell people with full confidence, without knowing you at all, that Jesus is sufficient when it comes to dealing with your sin. Many of you have probably seen the drawing. It was actually done with pencil and crayon, called Mary and Eve, by Sister Grace Remington, who is a Catholic nun. In the drawing, Mary, the mother of Jesus, takes the left hand of a very downcast Eve and touches Eve's hand to her own, that is, Mary's, pregnant midsection. Eve's head is bowed in shame and yet Mary gazes upon her with compassion and hopefulness because she knows who's in her womb. And then if you pan down to the bottom of this drawing you see the serpent wrapped around Eve's leg and yet his head is crushed beneath Mary's left foot. I read an interview with Sister Grace Remington, who was asked, you know, what's, what's your favorite part about this, this drawing, which was never intended to be a big deal. It kind of became a big deal, but she was just like messing around. And they used it on a Christmas card, and then became globally famous. <laughs> So someone asked her, you know, what's your favorite part about the painting? And she basically said, in a number of words, that her favorite part is that Jesus is not there, but there, all at the same time. You can't see him in the drawing, but he's there in Mary's pregnant womb. (coughs) If you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus is here, he's there even if you can't see Him right now. I also want you to know that if you devote yourself to truly seeking Him, you will find Him. If you seek after Christ Jesus, no matter what you see right now, know that He is there, and you will find Him. Or to put it more accurately, God will find you. And so I pray that this Advent season would be a season of honest and truthful seeking and consideration. And we would love to help you with that. Amen.